You choose Columbus Business First every week to give you the inside industry intelligence for nearly every business sector in central Ohio. And Columbus Business First chose Crate Media as its official podcast partner for its unique show, Women of Influence, now 70 episodes strong. With 4 million shows, hundreds of millions of listeners, and industry advertising revenues approaching $4 billion, podcasting is the fastest growing audio medium in the U.S. From law to medical, construction to automotive, retail to real estate, every brand has a story. Let Crate Media help tell yours. Visit crate.media slash CBF to learn more about how we can help while receiving a free one-hour casting session with our expert producers, which will help to uncover and shape your company's branded podcast. To learn more about sponsoring Columbus Business First Women of Influence podcast, please email Advertising Director Steve Hewitt at shewitt at bizjournals.com to get started. That's S-H-E-W-I-T-T at bizjournals.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Columbus Business First, newest episode of the Women of Influence podcast. I'm your host, Emily Bench, and this podcast features a sit-down chat between me and some of the sharpest and most successful women executives in Columbus. In it, we talk about the professional risks they've taken and the ups and downs of getting to where they are today. With us today on the show is Rachel Friedman, the founder and CEO of Tenfold. Rachel, thanks so much for coming. Thanks for having me. Rachel is the founder and CEO of Tenfold. Tenfold was born out of a personal dream to own and build a great company with a great company culture and the belief that the two can go hand in hand. The company was included in Business First on its Fast 50 list of the fastest growing companies in Central Ohio and was named to the prestigious Inc. 500 as one of the fastest growing private companies in the nation. Tenfold became a reality when Rachel decided in 2014 to step down from her VP role at a multi-million dollar company and pursue her dream of founding and developing her own business. Could you explain to our readers what a strategy and creative firm focused on brand and culture consulting is. Well, oftentimes we'll say a picture's worth a thousand words. Mm -hmm. And so our work, a lot of our work is very visual. So one way is to kind of direct your listeners to our website, which is really helpful at tenfoldbrand.com. But the way I describe it to clients is I I say we help our clients to reveal and reflect the magic of brand and culture. And we do that through two practices at Tenfold. One is our place practice where we leverage space as a medium to communicate. So primarily walls, but sometimes the floors, sometimes the ceilings in the work environment. We use graphics and digital technology and um, other aspects of design to help bring that brand and culture story to life for our clients. So things like vision, values, history, mission, products and services, celebration of their, of their team, of their talent, all of those aspects can, can be conveyed through a design experience, leveraging the walls as the medium to communicate. Cool. That's yeah. awesome. So that's the place side of our business. Okay. And then we have another practice at Tenfold called the culture practice, where we help clients define and articulate corporate culture. So one of the things that we found in working with our clients is that they really, I mean, they could tell us whether their culture was good or positive or healthy, or on the flip side, if things were maybe a little unhealthy or dysfunctional. But in either case, they really had a difficult time in articulating what it was about their culture and why. So I would meet with leaders who would say things like, oh, you know, our culture is our secret sauce. Mm. And we believe that. We believe that culture really matters. 
Um, and so it kind of begs the question of if you can't describe it and you can't articulate it, how do you manage it? Um, so what we did at Tenfold is we said, you know, this is a problem that we want to solve. And um, we've leveraged a te- technique that has been used a little bit in the brand world and consumer brand research. And we've flipped it to the consumer of the culture, which is the associate. Okay. So we've um, leveraged a discipline of psychology called narratology, Ooh, which is how we, scientific. it is, um, <laughs> it, which is the study of how we connect and relate through story. Okay. And we use those approaches in terms of our research instruments to enable people to really open up from a place that they're not used to talking from, to get to that descriptive articulation mm-hmm. of what it is about the culture and why. Um, so it enables us to really bring that to the surface and we call it kind of cracking the code of culture and we think we've done that. That sounds like such a unique vision and mission of a company. So could you walk me through your resume of just where you started Mm -hmm. and how you ended up doing what you're doing and and what kind of got you into this very unique setting? Yeah, so I graduated with a fine arts degree in design. Um, So I have always approached my career, my work, and my job with this kind of design mentality, mm-hmm. which it's funny today, you know, this was, I was in college a long time ago, <laughs> but today this whole idea around design thinking, right, in, in terms of how businesses are built was really very much a part of my DNA and very much a part of my educational background. Okay. And so I worked as a designer in commercial environments, meaning, you know, primarily focused on, on workplace okay. and designed uh, for those environments from an interior design perspective uh, for a number of years. And I ended up up um, working for Herman Miller, which is, your listeners may be familiar with, with Herman Miller, the, the yeah. you know, kind of industry, furniture industry innovator, mm-hmm. manufacturer. And in my role with Herman Miller, I was really focused on helping Fortune, five com- Fortune 500 companies align their workplace strategy with their business strategy. And from that experience, I fell in love with business. I fell okay. in love with learning about different business models and mm-hmm. how they're structured in different industries. I was working with clients that were in vastly, vastly different industries, everything from government contractors to insurance companies to retail companies. And so I realized that I had this passion for business. So I went back to school while I was working full time, got my MBA in marketing and strategy. So I had this kind of unique combination Mm -hmm. of this design approach, problem solving mentality, really strong lean in towards uh, brand with my my MBA, which was really focused on business strategy, pulled those two together to help our clients you know, solve different problems. Mm. So during my career, what I found is we would create spaces that were functionally appropriate. They were aesthetically beautiful. Again, this is on the design side. Right. But there was nothing about them that said who they were, what they stood for. You know, essentially, again, kind of what their brand and, brand and culture story was. So I thought, what, what a missed opportunity. Mm. You know, you have clients that are spending all of this, you know, all of this investment in creating their workplace, which oftentimes is, you know, second to the cost of human capital. It's like their greatest investment. Yeah. And it's not working hard enough for them. They're not leveraging it um, to educate, to inform, and to inspire the visitors to the space as well as the employees that work in the space every day. Hmm. So that was the idea, and it, and it is and was um, very unique. It's catching up. You yeah. know, industry is kind of recognizing it. I think some of that is is in Columbus where we're talking about it a right. lot and, and we've been really fortunate um, to have some really nice exposure. But I think for a very long time, we've really been blazing a new trail. Yeah. And that's really where my passion is. I love blazing new trails. Mm, I love I pioneering love things that haven't been done before, solving problems, identifying these value propositions that 
when you build your set of capabilities to deliver on a value proposition and you're explaining it to a client, they go, oh my gosh, yes, that is what I need. But they didn't know that they needed it or they weren't asking for it. But when you talk to them about, about it and you educate them about it, it makes total sense to them. And that's really what's happened with the culture practice, which, you know, with Tenfold, we're five years old. So Um, I've been doing this for much longer, but as far as being on my own, Mm -hmm. it's been five years and about two to two and a half years of that have been the launch of the culture practice. So the two practices work together Mm -hmm. really well, but they also are standalone. Um, So we have some clients that engage us for our culture research, our analysis, our insights and strategy, and we, we we create action plans for them specific to the culture, depending on what they're trying to do with it. We have some clients that are just engaging us relative to some facility change and they want to brand their environment. Okay. Um, so we pull them together. We think it makes the most sense when they're yeah. pulled together, but they can also stand alone. Sure. Cool. So, okay, I want to go back to something that I think is a question that my friends ask themselves a lot, especially young in your career, MBA. Do mm. you suggest going back and getting a business degree? And do you suggest doing that while you're still working full time? So it's it's a great question, mm-hmm. and and I can I can relate to both sides of it. So I had an unbelievable and incredible opportunity to have my education paid for by yeah. my employer, and I think that for anyone who has that opportunity, I mean it's just a phenomenal benefit and one that people should be taking advantage of. So it made that decision a lot easier for me. Sure. What I will say is that I I got a tremendous amount out of my education, and I went to Fisher College of Business at Ohio State for my MBA. And it was really valuable to me on a lot of levels. One was kind of just the context of, you know, what you're learning and how you apply that to your career yeah. and, and where you are in your career. For me, being a Bachelor of Fine Arts major <laughs> in my undergrad, it was, uh, a lot of it for me was just kind of uh, helpful in terms of validation and giving me the confidence that, yes, I do. Mm. I, I do understand this. I can be in the CEO suite and understand what's going on with the businesses and make recommendations. And so for some of it, it was, it was validation and it was giving me some credentials that, you know, were going to help me in the business world. So I think it's a balance of both. I certainly have heard the argument that why do you need that? And, you know, why do you even need undergraduate education? (laughs) I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of people out there that are arguing that side. It's hard because it's so darn expensive. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't really, I think it depends. I think it really depends on the, on the student. It depends on where they're at in their career and what they want to do with it. I really embraced mine, really loved it. And actually some of what I learned in terms of strategy from uh, anyone who was involved with Fisher during this time probably is familiar with Jay Barney, Professor Jay Barney, who was chair of the strategy. Mm -hmm. He he changed my life. Mm. He doesn't necessarily know that. I've told him that. (laughs) But, uh, But he was the one who really was like, oh my gosh, Rachel, when you talk yeah. about this business, this teeny little capability that you have, because it wasn't my full-time job, he was like, you know, the energy just completely changes in the room. Why aren't you spending more time on this? You should be doing this full-time. Yeah. And he was absolutely right. And that's really how, you know, one of the things that led to me really wanting to roll yeah. out on my own and, and create Tenfold. Yeah. I have so many questions about that, and I like want to ask them now, but I have one question that I sure. I really want to know before we get started on that. So I've heard um, that you are really inspired by your mother and grandmother, mm-hmm. who are both business owners. Could you yeah. explain to me a little bit about that sure. history in your family? So very different businesses. Looking at the women in my family, I, I feel like they're all just really strong, you know, independent women. Um, so my grandmother was a widow three times, mm. um, and which was all very tragic as 
as you know, she was a young woman, um, a young mother, and then you know, kind of through through her life. But through one of those experiences, she ended up running a jelly factory. So her um, it was actually her second husband. He he tragically passed in, in an accident, and you know, when he died, everyone was basically saying, "So you know, you're going to sell wow. sell the jelly factory." She was like, <laughs> "No, I'm I'm going to run it." And I so this is downtown Cleveland, yeah. you know, manufacturing heavy, not at a time when women were even working, let alone running businesses. And so there's stories of her, you know, stirring these large vats of jelly mm. with a boat oar. <laughs> and, uh, and I have a picture of her that sits on my desk of her, uh, someone had taken this picture and it's black and white and she's kind of working with a very old style adding machine. Oh, I love it. That's payroll, so cool. presumably, or, or something mm-hmm. like that. And, and so I've always felt like I've had some of those uh, role models in my life. My mom owned a restaurant. She was a restaurateur for a number of years. Oh so my in my, you know, probably from about 11 years old through 15, 16 years old, I, I grew up around, you know, working in the business. I would say like scooping butter and rolling silverware. That was kind of my job at 11 or 12 years old. And so I saw my mom in in that role as well. So I think it's helpful seeing strong, independent women who are, you know, trying to do their thing out in the world. What do you feel like you learned from them at a a young age? One of the things that I learned, I, I think from both my grandmother and my mother is that they were who they were. So they weren't going to change who they were as a person in whatever role they had, whether that role was boss, yeah. you know, or rather whether that role was mom, they did it in their own style, mm-hmm. you know. So I think it's it was nice to see uh, a woman in those roles who was very much, very, you know, very much a woman, not afraid, yeah. not didn't feel like she had to put up a front and pretend like she was, you know, someone else or yeah. more masculine. Let's say if we're sure. gonna think of it through kind of a sexist lens, but right. I learned that I learned hard work. Um, but I also learned that hard work doesn't necessarily equal success. Um, my mother's business um, had to close, so it shuttered. And I think that taught me a lot about uh, building that skill set around the, the fiscal responsibility and the fiscal understanding mm. of how to, to run a healthy business and yeah. you know, lessons learned of things that she might have done differently mm-hmm. relative to her growth. And, and so you, you take the, the highs and the lows and learn from both of those. Yeah. That's so cool. I feel like that's just such an awesome story to have that, especially like the further back you go generation wise, the more like rare and rare it becomes to see a woman in such a boss like position. So yeah, well, you mentioned in the intro, we were, you know, in the Inc 500 last year, which is um, the first year that we were eligible for the Inc 500. Mm -hmm. And we entered in at number 368, which was an incredible rank. We were only one of 12% of those businesses were women owned in the top 500. So you know, and I always say, like, that's that's a statistic that we're proud of and we're also very concerned about. Yeah. I, I, we're really fortunate. I feel like the business community, both clients as well as coaches, friends, have all been just incredibly supportive mm-hmm. of our business. And I think part of that's Columbus. And yeah. we talk a lot about the Columbus way and mm. how it's a real thing. <laughs> you know, a lot of people are willing to sit down and have coffee. And so I think it's been a wonderful city to start a business. And I've always felt very supportive, like people, you know, they're, they're, they want us to win. They're, yeah. you know, they're, they're behind us all the way. And we've had some recent experiences of really focusing in on some geographic growth in some other markets, and New York City is one of them. Mm-hmm. And we're just getting uh, tremendous feedback oh, on cool. our value proposition and what we're doing and our talent. And 
Um, that's really exciting because we know uh, how much competition is in that market. You know, there's thousands of firms who are consider themselves branding firms or design firms. Mm-hmm. And uh, to get the feedback from large pursuits and large opportunities in that market that, yeah, you, got, you, you are special yeah. is really validating for us. So we're super yeah. excited about that. That's great. Yeah. So for you, you know, starting your own business, it is in the same realm which you were in before, but you're still pivoting, you know, becoming an entrepreneur and starting your own business and becoming a founder of a company rather than just an employee. Mm-hmm. Um, were you scared to do that? Like of what course. was going through your head, you know? <laughs> it, of course. And, and I've told this story before, but I'm sure many of your li- listeners haven't heard it. At the time that I was considering doing this, first of all, I, was, I had been recently divorced at the time. I had three kids. And I had a very lucrative, very secure uh, position. Sure. So kind of had a little bit of the the golden handcuff thing going on. (laughs) And so uh, in terms of my life, it wasn't necessarily the best time in my life to be thinking about this. But when I was thinking about it, I was working with, I'm a peer advisory group, and the facilitator of the group said, well, you know, like, what's holding you back? And I said, fear? You know, like, I'm scared I'm going to be homeless. And, uh, and it was an interesting process because what she said to me was, you know, is that true? And I said, well, yeah, I could be homeless. And <laughs> she said, okay, well, are you, so if this fails, are you employable? And I said, well, yeah, you know, I, hmm. yes, I think I am employable, of course. And she said, well, could you get a job making the same amount of money that you're making now? And my response was, I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. Maybe not. Probably not. Yeah. And she said, okay, so then what? And I said, well, I, I might have to sell my home. And so at the end of the day, you know, you go from evaluating homeless on the street with three, with three kids, right, to if this doesn't work out, I might have to sell my house. Yeah. And it's a very different thought process and decision-making process where you say, you know what, that's worth it to me. Mm. I'm wor- it's worth taking that risk. I'm okay taking that risk. Yeah. Um, and then that really helps you to get over some of these fears that are in many ways very irrational. Yeah. What about starting your own business was so appealing to you yeah. personally? Well, it was always kind of on my list, mm-hmm. meaning it was always something that I felt like I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And I was 22 years into my career when I made this decision. Wow. So there was a lot of it for me that was like, if I, if I don't do this now, I'm not sure I'm ever going to do it. And so I think that was a big part of it. And the other part of it was that I was really interested and focused on having the opportunity to build a culture from scratch. So in all the other business situations that I had or or, um, careers that I had, and I kind of inherited a team, and the the teams were great, so don't get me wrong about that, but there was something really intriguing for me, especially with my passion and curiosity about culture to be able to kind of really build that from the ground up from yeah. scratch. And so I, I would say those were kind of the two really strong motivating factors. And, and the other was just the personal challenge. It's like, you know, can I do this? Yeah. I've learned a lot. I feel like I've been preparing this whole time. I have, you know, I have the educational background. I have the professional background. Mm-hmm. I worked for a large public company. I worked for a large private company. So I felt like I had really good, solid foundation to, yeah. to do that. And quite honestly... I marvel at those entrepreneurs who have never worked for anyone, and good for them. I think it's <laughs> awesome. I lean on my experience that I had every day, yeah. every day, systems, policies, procedures, challenges that you face, how I think it would be very different to start Tenfold with 
out all of that background in, right. my, in my history. What would you say to someone who maybe had the same level of experience and of life experience or professional experience um, and are thinking about starting their own business, but they're afraid maybe of what their mother-in-law would think mm. or maybe they're afraid of failing and, and figuring out like kind of what yeah. you were saying, what would you tell them? I think I would tell them, and you know, sometimes this just comes with years of wisdom, <laughs> growing into yourself and and getting a greater sense of your own identity. Um, we, I have a, a several people on my team at Tenfold who have kind of gone through that sort of reckoning over their career to get much greater clarity about what's important to them. You know, what what is really purpose driven work for them? Yeah. What how do they really want to be spending their time? And what is most important to them? And some of that, I think, just comes with, with experience and age yeah. and wisdom. But I would just encourage people to be true to themselves, you know, understand exactly what it is that, that they truly do value, and it isn't always the money, right? Yeah. Um, a lot of people will put the, the value of work-life balance over that, and that really does matter. It's yeah. something that matters to us a lot at Tenfold, and yeah. we, we stay very focused on that. And that whatever you choose to do, if you have a passion for it, you know, it's your, it's your strength and, and you really love it, there's a, there's a really good chance you're going to do well. Yeah. So. I think culture and I think the words like work-life balance are something that companies talk about a lot in modern day just because it seems to be something that's becoming more and more valuable to people who are working in companies. How do you take that into your hands at Tenfold and really make that applicable to your employees? Yeah, I think a lot of it is staying really focused on the bandwidth of your team. And if you set expectations for yourself around what is the, an appropriate length of the workday mm-hmm. and time off and the level of stress in the organization, yeah. uh, generally what it means for us at Tenfold is that you know, we have to add to the team mm-hmm. and we have to make those investments in our, in our growth. So we stay very attuned to that. We also, we, we set our hours. Our hours are nine to five. Mm-hmm. They're nine to five because we want them to be nine to yeah. five. And, uh, and I'm just, you know, not interested in burning my, my team out. I mean, the, the talent's too valuable. I want them to be with us forever. I want yeah. them to love what they're doing. And especially in a creative field, the well does run, run dry. It can. Yeah. So this bucket of creativity that you have that comes from inspiration and any type of creativity creating and it doesn't necessarily have to be a design firm obviously but when that bucket runs dry there's a reason for it and you have to find ways to get inspired and a lot of that is being quiet you know getting out wandering wondering and if you're constantly stressed up against a deadline and you have more work than you can possibly handle the work is going to suffer it's not going to be creative it's not going to be inspired and so it's really important to the quality of our work. So it isn't just a, the right thing to do, right. which, by the way, it is the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. It also happens to be good for business, which there's a lot of stuff like that yeah. when it comes to investing in your people and culture. It's, yeah, it's the right thing to do. Oh, and by the way, it makes your, your, your work better, your team more productive, your team more engaged, less turnover. You know, all of those things are good for business. Yeah. So I want to talk about something that I think is really important for women in the workplace that I don't know if it is discussed enough. Women comparing themselves or their business, especially as a founder or entrepreneur, to other women. 
do you struggle with that at all? Is that something that you face? Um, whether that is maybe yeah, comparing Tenfold to other businesses or just comparing yourself like as Rachel to other people? I think uh, from a business perspective, not so much, but I think on a personal level, it happens all the time. Yeah. And it's, for me personally, and I've talked to other women, I think who feel the same, it can be a whole host of different things that you're comparing. But I think for the working mom, it mm. generally is, you know, looking at that other person could be a working mom, might be a stay at home mom. And it's like, man, they've got it all together. Mm. How do they do it? <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's a very, it's a false image. And it's one that we're projecting and it may be the furthest thing from the truth. And yeah. so I don't ever feel like I've got it all together, but I know probably there are people like, oh my gosh, how does she do it all? Yeah, me. Or she's I was that. <laughs> you seem awesome. <laughs> right. right. And so, and I think a lot of it is really just talking about and being more open and more transparent about sure. the struggles that we have as, as working women or as stay-at-home moms and how nobody's perfect mm-hmm. and how, how we can help each other, quite yeah. honestly, and the failures that we have. I mean, yeah. I, I had a you know, I've had many, many of those where I feel like I've let my kids down or I've missed something really important or I just, you know, couldn't get everything organized yeah. and I dropped the ball and, you know, we all think that we're the only ones that that happens to and it's just not true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that that is, it's such an important question because I don't know how many men are comparing themselves to other dads in the workplace or, you know, why, why do we feel like this is constantly something that we're, we're dealing with but never actually discussing it with other people, you know? Because mm-hmm. when you bring that to light, then that makes it so much more apparent. Yes. Yeah. I agree. And I, I, don't, I don't know that I have all the answers. I, I, I do know when we take those steps to show more of our vulner, vulnerability, it takes some courage. But what I find every time is that numerous people come out of the woodwork saying, oh my gosh, thank you so much for sharing that. I recently had a keynote, uh, shared a story about my son, Miles, who had given up baseball to be on the lacrosse team because it was a you know sport that conflicted during the season. So he gave up his position on the club team, mm-hmm. you know, let that go, didn't try out for the, for the baseball team. And, and uh, the season came around for lacrosse and there was a meeting and I didn't realize that you had to be present at the meeting to sign them up. Otherwise, <laughs> they would not get a spot on the team. And this happened literally after we had bought him all the gear at the holidays. And the, and it was absolute heartbreak for me. I mean, I was crushed. Yeah. You would have thought something horrible happened. So they basically were like, he can't be on the team because you didn't show up at the meeting. That's right. Yeah. I, I, there, was, there were more people who came than there were spots. And uh, so essentially, it was not a spot for him. And I, and I walked around with this for days, trying to resolve it, trying to reconcile it with the decision makers, right. trying to kind of plead or beg my way in to, can, can, he, can he practice with the team <laughs> and not play? Can he, something, something that I could yeah. go back to him with, mm-hmm. with this bad news to, to, to kind of make it better in some way. And it was devastating. Mm-hmm. It was devastating. As the story turns out, it, it did have a happy ending, and there was a kid that decided not to play two or three weeks into the season, and so my son got to play on the team. But Was he upset? So amazingly, and, and literally, I, I'm not exaggerating, when I, I couldn't sleep, I was, I was oh. crushed. He was amazing. Oh. Amazing. How old is he? At the time, he was 12. You know, and, and he, in some ways, was, you know, like, well, that's silly, you know, or... 
Well, um, and then he would try to kind of problem solve it and, uh, and, and kind of very rationally and thoughtfully was problem solving in the same ways that I was trying to go about problem, problem solving it. And so we kind of worked through that. And then at kind of the end of the conversation, he, he was like, it's okay. It's not your fault, mom. And he said, um, you know, well, maybe I'll do club basketball, you know? So I was amazed. It was a great moment for us in our relationship. Um, you know, I've got amazing kids and, uh, and when I shared that story, I literally had 20, 25 emails of Mm. women who were sending me emails afterwards saying, that's, that's what keeps me up at night is screwing up like that. Or I have screwed up like that. And it was just so great to hear you share that. It, It just, we said we should have like a hashtag that's like mom failures or mom fails or something like that. <laughs> Be more open about them, I guess. Yeah, I love that. I think that's a perfect example of just being open and honest yes, about ways. Yes, it happens. Like, you're not going to, there's no way that you can run a I company. I didn't think it like... was fair, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I had a lot of issues. Those with moms the way... are listening right now. <laughs> right. We have some thoughts. <laughs> I, I definitely had opinions about how the process was working. But uh, at the end of the day, and I learned a lot about myself, and I certainly learned about the um, amazing level of maturity of, of yeah. my son. And then at the end of the day, it all worked out. Yeah. So. There are so many things I feel like me as a kid, my mom worked, and there were just a lot of things that other kids' parents would show up to, which was great. But I would just go on my own, and it was fine. I actually learned so much about being independent as a pretty young kid because yeah. I didn't have to have my mom there, like, doing everything with me. So I think you're doing awesome. Well, thank you. <laughs> I thank you. Yes. So let's go back to Tenfold. So so Tenfold has been very successful very quickly. How has it grown so fast? What can you attribute that growth to? Um, I think the majority of the growth is really attributed to the fact that we have a very unique value proposition that fits squarely with our clients, the ones that truly do value culture in their organizations, see the value in what we're doing, and see yeah. it as an opportunity to connect with their associates and clients and visitors. I think leadership is trying to focus on whatever they can do to enhance and move forward their strategy. Mm-hmm. And what we're providing for them is a unique tool and a unique channel of communication. And with the culture practice, a unique articulation that connects with people on an emotional level. Mm -hmm. And when you can get that connection on an emotional level, that's the buy-in. That's the true engagement. Um, They're all measuring for engagement, but they're not always necessarily getting to the heart of what really matters to people. And I think... Um, what we're able to do is is um, kind of squarely put with these senior leaders these opportunities to propel their organizations forward. So the ones who truly believe that culture eats strategy for breakfast, if they you know if they really believe that, it's not just talking the talk. Mm-hmm. They get and understand what we do, and they're willing to invest in it. And yeah. you know, like our name, we believe that the return is tenfold. Yeah. And how has that been for you? <clears throat> you know leading a company that really has, what, been around five years mm-hmm. and has seen, I I think I saw somewhere like, and I totally, this might be totally wrong, so Dana, <laughs> if it is, get, out, get it out, like a thousand percent growth or something crazy. Yeah, so to uh, to land on the Inc. 500, you know, we, at 368, we had over 1300 percent growth since That's crazy. Yeah. How has that been for you leading a company that has grown that quickly? Yeah. 
Growth is a really funny thing. <laughs> I think it's the number one greatest challenge for entrepreneurs. And when I talk mm. to other business owners, it's always the question, like how to grow, when to grow, are we growing too fast? Are we not growing enough? That to me in the business world is, is the art side of what we do versus the science side of what we do. And, and a lot of it really comes down to your own gut and intuition. It also comes down to your own risk tolerance. Mm. For me, I'm um, fairly conservative in, in how I look at growth and in terms of that fiscal mm. conservatism. And, you know, again, probably comes from some of my own life experiences. Yeah. You know, I think that growing smartly and, and I think growing is, is really important. Yeah. Um, because the other story I tell is, you know, just kind of the, the you know, if you're not growing, you're dying mm-hmm. comment that I've heard from, from other business leaders. Uh, which I never really knew or under, necessarily understood, or maybe I understood it but didn't fully embrace it until until I started Tenfold. And really, for me, it comes down to my talent. So if my talent can, is continuing to want to grow and develop, do more, make more, all yeah. of those things, uh, the company has to continue to grow to provide those opportunities for them. Yeah. And so for me, that's really the driving force in the growth, is to continue to provide uh, amazing development opportunities for my team, you know, such that they they want them. Yeah. You know, and if they love what they're doing and don't want to change what they're doing, that's fine too. Yeah. Um, but I think that's where the, the growth side of it is. So it's been a blast. Um, you know, I always say too, like it would be way more fun if you were on the flying trapeze and you felt like you had this net underneath you the whole time. So <laughs> some, of, some of being an entrepreneur is flying on the trapeze and having no net. Yeah. <laughs> and you know you have no net. Hmm. But that's, you know, that's part of the exhilaration. You know, the highs are really high. The lows are really low. We've been really lucky. We've had a lot of, a lot of highs. Yeah. A lot of accomplishments. So I want to go back to culture for a second. So you were talking about how you instill that uh, kind of work-life balance. Obviously, that is a a pillar of what you guys are about, but also, you know, in tenfold. How do mm-hmm. you yourself make that a priority as, you know, a founder of a really successful growing company? Yeah. How do you make time to, to do things for yourself? For myself or for the team? For yourself. Oh, for myself. Yeah. My work-life <laughs> We're here balance. to talk about you. <laughs> you know what? I think that is one of the hardest things because for me, it's fun. Yeah. Like, I love it so much, I have trouble putting it down. <laughs> I really do. Yeah. So to me, it's not work. And I think that a lot of entrepreneurs find themselves in that space. Yeah, that's why you go into it, because you love it so much. You love it so much, and it's, it's like that project that you just can't stop working on. And so uh, it consumes a lot of my thoughts, you know, a lot of my time, even when I'm not actively engaged in doing physical work or you know, email or whatever it is, because I love it so much. But I think one of the ways to maintain that is, is also the balance, is also realizing that it's what's best for the business. So... Ultimately, you want to build a business that operates without you, <laughs> and that's kind of the goal. Yeah. And uh, and so we often talk at Tenfold about, you know, when you're small and you're, you're a startup organization, everyone's wearing multiple hats. And part of what draws you to a company like that is that you like wearing multiple hats. But as you grow and scale, you have to figure out what are the hats that I'm going to take off because as you scale, you simply can't wear all the hats. There's, you know, there's not enough bandwidth yeah. to do that. Founders and entrepreneurs and solopreneurs, especially, um, find themselves in that trap. Mm-hmm. And so it's a it's a process of coupled with that growth strategy of figuring out what are the hats that I'm going to take off in the kind of the next round of investment. And what we do is we look at, and when I say round of investment, it's self investment. But it's you know what do I really love to do, and what am I really really good at? 
and trying to hold on to those hats. And that's, those are the conversations we have with our team as well. Mm-hmm. And, and you get a lot of like really good clarity around that. And then that enables some, some good balance. Yeah. You, you can't, you can't do it all and continue to grow. Yeah. You will burn out. It does fall apart. Yeah. And you let people down, which you don't want to do clients and otherwise. So we've right. been really intentional about those hats and figuring out where we're at in the process. Yeah. So as a woman founder, you know, I hear, I wouldn't know personally, but like I just hear a lot of times people say it's lonely at the top. You know, you're Mm -hmm. up there by yourself figuring things out. Who are people that are in your corner that um, kind of help fight the fight with you, whether that's a tenfold or otherwise? Yeah, so I could probably set that into kind of three three buckets or categories. One is my husband, so he's just a fantastic sounding board for me and uh, we like to walk so we we walk every weekend for sure mm-hmm. and uh and that's where we tend to get reconnected on everything yeah. we spend a lot of time talking about business he has his own business as well oh, so uh, we spend a lot of time talking through things so that's always really helpful mm-hmm. and I think it's really important to have people who are outside of of the business, who have a really objective point of view, who don't have another agenda. Chris definitely falls into that category. I would say the other would be, um, I do have a kind of a set of what I would consider, it's not an advisory board. I have some paid professional services that help me in various areas, kind of, again, going back to those hats. So we don't have a CFO. I've played that role. Well, I've I've hired a... um, you know, a consultant to help me with that. So Sam Jacob is his name. He's amazing. You know, my accountant has been there from the very beginning with me. I have a, a an outsourced controller now, which I had done all the all the books for the mm-hmm. first four years because I wanted to. I mm-hmm. wanted to get my hands dirty. I wanted to really understand exactly what the numbers were about and how it was working. But um, so when I feel like when I have those types of outside consultants that are coming in and meeting with me. They're fantastic advisors, and they provide a great, fresh perspective and point of view. And then the other would be, um, so I, I'm a part of a peer advisory group I'm, I'm, um, with Vistage, and so you know, once a month I get together with other business owners. Again, there's no agenda. There's for them. It's a completely objective point of view, and uh, the contributions that we all make to each other are just really incredibly generous in terms yeah. of the amount of care that people genuinely have in the room for you and whatever issue you're trying to process and what you're trying to solve. So those are all things that really help me make decisions and keep me grounded in in the business. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. So my last question, the Me Too movement has become somewhat of a cultural phenomenon, especially for women in the workplace. Do you happen to have any advice for other women who might be up against something similar? Yeah, it's fortunately for me, I have not experienced kind of that specific Me Too experience in the workplace. Mm. I've had some anti-Semitic remarks Mm. over my career that were very upsetting to me. I had a a situation actually in a retail store from like a Me Too moment that that I experienced, which was really unsettling. Mm. But fortunately in my career with many, many male mentors in my career have all been amazing. And many... Um, clients that I've had throughout my career who I would consider mentors Mm. uh, who've really just taken an interest in in me personally um, in my career or taken an interest in tenfold have been incredibly supportive and I have I really have never had any issues um, related to that one of the things that I would say to women um, 
again, it maybe it's maybe it goes along the, the theme of what we were talking about earlier. It's just I think we're really hard on ourselves. Mm-hmm. So even when when we experience something that's unsettling like that, we tend to self-criticize yeah. ourselves. Like, why did I react that way? Why didn't I do something different? Why didn't I say something? Why? What? You know? What did I say? Or I should have said something uh, different. And so I think, again, I think the Me Too movement is really important just by virtue of the fact that we're sharing stories and it enables people to have those moments of vulnerability where they realize that they're not so different than everyone else and to give themselves a break. We re- I recently heard a, a talk from a, a neuroscientist who was talking about those moments, and, and it was an interesting insight that I would share that I took away from it. And she talked about how you know, we all think that it's the fight or flight but there's a third, which is freeze. Hmm. And I had never heard that before. And I think so many women can relate to that. It's you're in the moment and you kind of freeze. Yeah. And you don't even, you really don't do anything. Mm-hmm. You don't fight. You don't flee. You find yourself caught in this moment and you really can't do anything. Yeah. And she even went on to say that many women will actually smile which connects back to kind of how we're wired as, as human beings yeah. to smile, which like takes the tension out of the moment. Yep. And Cause you don't know what else to do. You're like, ha ha Cause you're afraid. Yep. Yep. You're afraid. And so I think that, you know, forgiving ourselves for those moments where we've frozen yeah. and we haven't maybe been as strong as we mm-hmm. were hoping, you know, to say something to fight or to flee. Yeah. So. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's like, that's wonderful. I love that. Uh, So our last segment, I'm going to ask you a couple quick questions and just tell me, you know, the first thing that comes to your head when I ask it. What is the biggest myth about being a female executive? Oh my gosh, this is a really tough one. (laughs) So funny. I, this one always stumps people. Do you want to come back to it? Yeah. What did you want to be when you grew up? I, I wanted to be a designer. There you go. Yeah, Living the I dream. did. And, and, you know, we were talking about projects that you just can't put down. I took a really kind of very elementary <laughs> design uh, class in high school, and I couldn't put it down. Yeah. And my mom said to me, you know, I think you should look into design because you seem to really like that. Yeah. And what about it, like, intrigues you so much? To me, it was a project. It was... Um, it was it was just, it, it filled my creative needs yeah. and I just got into all that. I mean, I built a model, I got into all the little details mm-hmm. and, you know, I just had all these ideas for it and it was just a project that was never done. And I think that's, a lot of designers can relate to that. Our, our work is, we're always tinkering with it. We never feel like it's ready. <laughs> and I just, I really loved it. And kudos to my mom because mm. a lot of parents might not have encouraged their kids to go to the University of Michigan School of Art, you know, and pursue those passions because... What are you going to do with that degree? Well, right. you can do a lot with that degree. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, that's awesome because, you know, I love my mom, but my little sister thought about being an interior designer, and my mom mm-hmm. was like, I don't think that's a good idea. Now she's studying business, which she actually really likes, yes. and you're a perfect example. That actually might serve her very well doing business yes, and interior it, design, yes, but that's really cool that your mom was like, Or the fact that businesses now are just dying to hire people who get and understand this whole yeah. design thinking process. She has like so. a knack for it. Yeah. I'll just bring her over to my house. I'm like, I don't know what to do, <laughs> fix it. So, yeah. um, so how do you feel about being classified as a female CEO instead of just CEO? Do you get it first? Do you get it a lot? I do. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I, I would like for us to get to a place where, you know, it's just, it's just CEO. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. It'd be nice for some, some of those labels. But at the same time, you know, it's helpful to shine a light on, on some of those um, inequalities as well. And, you know, the fact that we still have a massive imbalance in the amount of CEO leadership in Fortune 100 and Fortune 500 companies or representation on public boards. And so those things definitely need to change. What do you know now that you wish you knew at the beginning of your career? Um, I think this whole idea of, of, is it true? You know, when you get wrapped up in uh, worry about something, to recognize that, that you're worrying and to ask yourself, are the stories that we're telling ourselves true? And it's a great reminder even now. So if I get kind of anxious or stressed out about something that's going on with the business, A, number one, worrying is the most unproductive <laughs> emotion that we have because it does nothing. It yep. does absolutely nothing. There's nothing productive about it. Um, so taking that step back to ask, is it true? Because I think that that holds a lot of us back from doing and pursuing a lot of different things or even just eliminating the worry, right? Mm-hmm. How much time do we spend or how much time do we waste in those moments? And so I think learning that skill a little earlier in my career would have been really helpful. Yeah. Who is your biggest role model or mentor? Well, you hit on two of them probably. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the women yeah. in my family are, are really strong I have a client that I worked with at ESPN who has also been a great mentor to me uh, over my career, just really kind of recognizing what was unique and special about what we were doing and just really kind of bolstering my confidence as it relates to that. And I really admire him for how he's able to develop people around him. He just has an amazing gift for that. Everyone within his organization from top to bottom, just developing those relationships and and really bringing out the best in other people. And so I would say he's he's another strong mentor of yeah. mine. Are you ready to go back to the first question? Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, I guess the most trait one is that they're bitchy. <laughs> right? I love that. Um, I mean, I don't love that people say that, but I love that you're, like, bringing yeah, that up. Yeah, that you, so that you kind of have to be a certain way maybe to, like, assert yourself or be yep. at the top. Or I do think that's a myth. I think it... I think you have to be who you are. You have to be yourself. And I think people see through whatever veiled things we're, you know, trying to put out there. And I think people appreciate authenticity. And that that rings from rings true from clients to uh, to your your team, most especially. And I think that one of the things I've learned over my career is that there are a million different leadership styles. Mm-hmm. And it's not a style that you pick, it's a style of who you are. Yeah. And for many years, I thought, oh, I couldn't, I couldn't be a CEO or couldn't be a leader. I'm not an extrovert. Yeah. I'm not, like, super charismatic. And that's not what people want. People want someone who's authentic, who's themselves. They want people who uh, value them and their talent, their contributions. They want people who have a passion for, for the business and have a vision. Those are the things that people are looking for. Um, and so it's very freeing to be able to, to recognize that, you know what, I, I can, I can be who I am and lead an organization or be a CEO. Yeah. Well, that is a perfect note to end on. That was awesome. Thanks. Rachel, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, today. Emily. This has been fun. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.